How can marginalized Christian communities of the past inform the work of church planters today? To unpack these questions, we turn to Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra and Reverend Brandon Runcher. Reverend Dr. Alexia Salvatierra is the Academic Dean of Central Latino and the Assistant Professor of Integral Mission and Global Transformation at Fuller Theological Seminary. Reverend Brandon Runcher is the founding minister of the Good Neighbor Movement. The book Buried Seeds is an exploration of two different grassroots faith movements and the ways in which 21st century Christians can learn from them. In the book, you'll find compelling testimonies of both base ecclesial communities of the Global South and hush harbors of the U.S. antebellum South, and the mighty works of God that were done among and through them. In this way, the book challenges modern readers to respond to God's call on their lives in their own communities. Today's interview explores the ways that we can learn from and model active and communal faith life of hush harbors and base ecclesial communities. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Alexi and Brandon, thank you so much for talking with me today. So we are talking about your book, uh, Buried Seeds. And in this book, as I understand it, you're talking about two kinds of communities in two different geographic southern regions, one the global south and the other um, the antebellum south in the United States. And I'd love to just set the stage. Uh, I'm wondering if each of you could talk a little bit about the communities that inspired you to write this book. And Alexia, if you'd be willing to get us started, what is a base ecclesial community and what about it sparks your imagination? Sure. I actually first ran into them in the sanctuary movement <laughs> mm-hmm. way back when, in the 1980s, not the current one. Um, and because I was part of one of the first sanctuary churches in the country. And people were coming from Central America, and a number of them were coming from base ecclesial communities. And when they talked about their experience of those communities and they talked about their faith, it was so vibrantly alive. It was so clear that the spiritual and the social and the political were not separated in any way, shape, or form that these people were risking their lives for justice. Um, In fact, we're in this country because they had risked their lives for justice. And, but that was completely supported and sustained and intertwined with their faith. And then of course, um, I ended up involved with a project, an international project where I was part of the peace process in Central America a little later in the early nineties and ran into them all again. Um, But in between those two times, I was in the Philippines as a missionary for three years, and I was part of the pro-democracy movement um, confronting the the Marcos dictatorship, a movement that at the time ended up winning. And I was part of a base Christian community in the process. So I had this whole experience of what that movement looked like in the Philippines, as well as the time that I spent earlier on in the sanctuary movement in the U.S. and the time that I spent as part of the peace process. So lots of different experiences of exactly that kind of vibrant integration of just the deepest internal and interpersonal faith with transforming the world. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. We'll get 
a little bit more into some of the characteristics of those communities. But Brandon, I'd love it if you could jump in because um, the the part of the book that focuses on hush harbors is in the, the antebellum South. And I'm curious what sparks your imagination there. This really, my, my imagination was sparked mainly because of the movement for Black Lives and how that movement was asking serious questions about the role of faith and spirituality, and in particular, the role of the church in that movement. And I began to have conversations with um, colleagues of mine, clergy colleagues, clergy activist colleagues, um, because we were a part of the movement and we're finding that the kinds of experiences of, um, I love the language that Alexia uses, vibrant faith put into action in the streets for justice um, felt like a sacred space and felt very different than what we we are experiencing in uh, the congregations that we were leading. And, you know, I was finding that um, Many of my peers, many of my, you know, my siblings, um, just many folks in my family, um, cousins had were kind of done with with church as they had come to know it, mm-hmm. um, and yet many of them were connecting to the movement for Black Lives. And when you heard them talk about the experience of being involved in the movement, it sounded like. Um, what we would call discipleship. It sounded like transformation for them. It wasn't just about taking action. There was a way in which those folks were um, learning about themselves, um, relying on something bigger than themselves, um, and committed to um, uh, a a vision for the future that um, enabled them to overcome uncertainty in the present moment. And so I begin to wrestle with if, you know, churches are not the um, place that activists and organizers and artists um, and folks of conscience who are involved in the contemporary um, Black liberation movement, um, then where do we turn um, for um, how we go about shaping faith spaces in, in, in this, in this time. And, you know, I think often when we, in the, in the black community, at least when we ask that question, we often turn to the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a noble place to turn. Um, and yet when I begin to really look there, um, I, I begin to see how they were asking similar questions of the church. Um, when you think about, and I'm, uh, point to this in the book, uh, Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from a Birmingham jail talks about the church within the church. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he really uh, questions um, the church writ large about their faithfulness to the gospel and living out, um, you know, what he called the beloved community. And so I was like, well, maybe there, maybe there's another place I can go. And, uh, and I remembered in um, my undergraduate degree learning about um, the Hush Harbors. And what makes the Hush Harbors unique uh, is that they were kind of, um, they, they, they were like the, the church before the church in terms of the black church in this country. And, you know, they were 
spaces out, usually out in the wilderness, out in the woods, off of the plantation, where enslaved Africans would um, gather to worship freely in the way that they had um, been shaped to worship from their African traditional religions, um, put into conversation with what they um, learned about Jesus and the spirit. And then they would also, you know, strategize uh, in order to uh, plot for the abolition of uh, the chattel slavery system. And so, it, you know, I found that the the hush harbors were the kind of space that was asking the right questions. Um, help me to ask the right questions in light of the kinds of challenges that we face right now with the church's witness in the world. Um, and, and yeah, it just, it kind of started there. The other piece I'll add, and then I'll, I'll sort of I'll stop here is that I begin to notice that people like me, you know, clergy, clergy activists, clergy leaders were, um, finding ourselves creating kind of makeshift worship and spiritual formation spaces um, within the movement um, that often weren't in church buildings, were in the streets or in community centers or in parks online. And, um, and so the Hush Harbor sort of give a kind of paradigm for thinking about that way of gathering. It's interesting to me that both of you are are pulling at groups of minoritized and very oppressed people who were in very different, very different contexts. But I'd love for you to talk through some of the similarities that led you to pull these together into a book uh, that I think presents a compelling case for for why you should have done that. But what are some of the similarities that you saw? So if I can jump in for a minute, um, when I was listening to you, Brandon, right now, I was thinking about the needs of the people that you and I love, um, the needs of the people that we walk with and serve with. And in my context, there are two very distinct groups um, that have a desperate need for the kind of fullness of life that I experienced in the base Christian communities. I work with a number of young Latinx millennials, um, some of whom are my students and some of whom are my um, mentees. I work with a whole large network of them, inter interlaced networks of them. And they are so wounded by white supremacy. And they are so hurt by being rejected on the one hand by Spanish-speaking churches who don't trust them and being on the margins of English-speaking churches who don't really value them in lots of ways. And just feeling lost and, and feeling at the same time 
sort of bubbling in them such a deep sense of connection with God and hunger for God. And so I kept saying, and they're entrepreneurial. They're very entrepreneurial. They start churches, but they have trouble sustaining it. Mm-hmm. And they just so deeply need deep roots. So, you know, when Brandon and I were talking as we got to know each other about, you know, the hunger for these deep roots, and then and then the fact that we know that these deep roots exist. So, you know, it's just like... Like I'm such a mom, you know, like, okay, there's food over there. There's hungry kids over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How do you make the connection between the two? But the other thing, the other group of people, and I think in Brandon's context, they're a little more mixed together. In my context, they tend to be pretty separate, is people that are um, not young. They're, they're immigrant pastors, and they were given a version of Christianity Now we're talking here Protestant, Pentecostal, Evangelical, Charismatic, whatever you call it. They've been given a version of Christianity that really doesn't match them culturally and that really doesn't respond well to the unjust suffering in our communities, which is such a a profound reality in Latin America and also in, in Hispanic communities in this country. You know, we were at the top of the pandemic statistics and not in a good way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. so many people dying unnecessarily. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but not having a way to live the faith that that responded to all these needs, but still held on to what was most important to them, this living sense of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. And again, my feeling like, oh, no, but there are, I knew people who did it better, <laughs> Mm-hmm. I knew people who, you know, who were able to draw from my roots. So, you know, that's, anyhow, that that's what I was thinking. That's great. Thank you. Um, we're not going to have time to get into all the, the things, of course, that you explore in your book. But one of the things that you've identified as being really significant is um, the gathering of a, what you call a critical mass of, of marginalized voices who are centered within a community, whether that's a base ecclesial community or, or in a hush harbor, what, what would you say is going on there in this idea of kind of a, a critical mass coming together and not necessarily under the umbrella of an all are welcome, but that um, a very specific group of people are coming together. Yeah, this was interesting. I'd love to have Brandon start in this one, but because we have, are the two movements we work with have real similarities and real differences in this area? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like I feel like what you have with the critical mass of oppressed folks at the at the center of of gathering um, a hush harbor is um, is about dignity. Um, it is about agency. Um, and it is about undoing um, the uh, powerlessness that these folks experience and all of these um, having everything to do with faith. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so in other words, you don't gather and check issues of power at the door that you experience out in the community or that you experience in the faith community. You don't gather and check your dignity at the door 
um, you don't gather and check your agency at the door, that, that, that all of that is a part of it. And in order for that to be the case, it has to be the folks who are closest to um, the powerlessness, the injustice, um, and the potential and possibility who are at the center of that practice, um, that dreaming, um, and that leadership. Um, and so, uh, so that, you know, that's the, that's why I would talk about, it. I think the piece, and I love what Alexia is saying about the difference here and Alexia, uh, will, will, uh, speak to the, the basic Ecclesial communities, of, of course. I think the thing that is unique about the Hush Harbors is that historically, um, in terms of the antebellum Hush Harbors, uh, by and large, those were black only spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also true that um, those spaces weren't reduced to only race as the most important feature of what it meant for the group to be unified, that it was also a commitment to abolition, a commitment to um, disavow and um, really to betray the plantation Christianity and plantation economy. And not all black people did that. And in fact, some white allies did. And so you have instances, and we I talk about this in the book, where white folks were in relationship to the Hush Harbors mm-hmm. um, because they had, uh, of course, um, went through their own process of um, betraying uh, the culture of white supremacy that shaped them and that they benefited from in order to be in solidarity with enslaved Africans that were seeking to be free um, and to do that animated by their faith. Yeah, that's interesting. So there are these boundaries, but they're they're kind of transgressible or permeable to, to a point. Yeah, I mean, I think that that would be that the question of boundaries is the biggest difference. Uh, when I think about the critical mass, the, the essential importance of a critical mass of oppressed people, I think of the psychological and spiritual damage that is produced by oppression and perpetuates it. And I think that there's a different kind of damage produced in oppressed people and produced in privileged people. And I could spend you know an hour talking about this. <laughs> I don't mm. want to right now. But... Um, in Latin America, the, the process of liberation is defined for oppressed people as moving from it to I, moving from object to subject. And for privileged people, I've, been, I've thought a lot about how it's a movement from I to we and from the false sense of self that comes when you have to justify your privilege. So... The problem with bringing people together, like either even an equal number, let alone more people that are privileged, is that all the damage is just very present in the room. And so it is very hard for everyone to, for oppressed people to take the lead. And, you know, I think of not only people who, who consciously think of oppressed, privileged people who consciously think of oppressed people as less. I think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, good, liberal, humanist 
psychologist, Mm -hmm. but saying that you can't, you know, get to the higher levels unless the lower levels are satisfied, right? That you Mm -hmm. can't really be altruistic, that you can't sacrifice your life for Mm -hmm. somebody else or for a cause unless you have your basic security and food needs met. It's like, like, what is he talking about? Who have been the people um, who have been most ready to give their lives for what they believed? You know, and it's been mm-hmm. people who didn't have their security needs met. And then, so these subtle forms of um, of discrimination that happen around those, um, that power dynamic that I'm talking about. You know, I remember, um, I think it was actually with you, Brendan, that I came up with this. I used to, in some of the trainings I've done around how, how to overcome some of this damage and how to share power in the way that we see in Genesis 1, the beautiful flow of power back and forth between God and the people. But how, you know, so we do work workshops on this. And, you know, a number of years ago, I used to just separate people into oppressed and privileged, and they would go right into their places because um, mm-hmm. they knew who they were. But more recently, that's much more confused in our world. Like no one wants to admit that they're privileged. So I was working with a group of people, and I think it was actually a group of people connected to Brandon. And I said to go into places, you know, separate into oppressed and privileged for the exercise. And they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. So I said, um, okay, those of you who are not sure that people who are different from you can carry their end of the work as well as you could that you're worried about that. There's some of you who are worried when you work in mixed groups that people who are different from you are not going to be able to carry their end of the work well. And there's some of you who are worried that the other people think you can't carry your end of the work well, and that you're worried that maybe you'll never be able to change their minds. So separate Mm -hmm. along those lines. And they immediately separated by color. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. It was wild, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't admit it, but they did, right? The white yeah. people were in one group, the black and brown people were in another group. Wild, right? Yeah. So what happens in a base Christian community, and it's different around boundary because you have to remember it's the Catholic Church. No communities could be closed. It's the Catholic Church, right? Mm-hmm. Communities were open to everyone. But they learned really early on in the process that if there weren't a critical mass of poor people, not voluntarily poor, but actually poor, if there weren't a critical mass of poor people, the base Christian communities didn't fly. The base ecclesial communities didn't work. They died. Mm -hmm. The communities weren't able to to deal with the reality of the situation that they were in and keep responding with this kind of powerful Christian faith unless they were actually led by the people who are most affected. And that that really only happened when there was a critical mass of them. So there were often these pastoral agents that were, you know, nuns or priests um, who would start a community, but if they didn't back out, the community didn't survive. Hmm. So they needed to remove themselves at a point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think I think one other thing that to mention too, I, I appreciate you bringing this up, Alexia, about. Um, the Catholic Church, that the way boundaries operated had a lot to do with the institutions that these movements, these communities were connected to. And I just want to, one thing I failed to mention, but is important to lift up is that it wasn't just the things that I named that um, were the reasons why there needed to be this, like you said, uh, a sort of permeable 
uh, tra- tra- transgressible boundary. It was also because hush harbors were illegal. It was illegal for enslaved Africans to gather out of the surveillance, away from the surveillance or the oversight of, um, of, um, of white folks uh, or the folks that, 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 um, that were hired. Um, and at times these were even, even enslaved Africans hired to, to, um, to oversee um, enslaved Africans' behavior and, and work, et cetera. And so hush harbors were illegal gatherings. Mm-hmm. So that, I, I just want to name that, that, that like the price, the risk, the price had was that um, uh, enslaved Africans would be killed, hanged, um, you know, separated from their families or from their uh, sort of kinship networks, sold off, uh, et cetera. But, you know, we, we had a lot of conversation between us about, you know, as we move in at, as in the middle of the 21st century, um, where are there needs to be very intentional about gathering groups that are primarily or only oppressed people? And where can you have open boundaries? And how does that work? That I think that that we had some really powerful conversations about that. And, there, and those conversations really are clear in the book. The methodology that you chose to use in, in some of the chapters um, where you talk about seeing, judging, and acting as a way of moving through. Um, so excuse me if my pronunciation is wrong, but there, who's gar and actuar. Um, Alexia, you can correct me, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thank you. Um, But you kind of summarize those as what, so what, and now what? And I would love it if, if each of you'd be willing to, to tell a story that might demonstrate what that looks like in practice in a community um, to see something, to judge and, and then to act. Um, um, and, and before I do that, I do just want to, I want to say that we were very careful in the book to make it clear that there is a role for everyone in a vibrant Christian community, that having a critic in the 21st century, that having a critical mass of oppressed people in charge doesn't mean that there's no role for people who have a mixed identity or that there's no role for people that are privileged. And so in all of our chapters in the book, and the last, at the end of each chapter, we talk to people in all three of those contexts and say what the chapter might mean for them. Let's spend a little more time there. You talk about them as Amos, Lydia, and Ruth. So can you talk a little bit about how you define those different people and kind of create a, a character sketch as a kind of a template of <laughs> Well, let me connect that too with what you were just saying with um, Ver Juzgar and Actuar is that the Ver Juzgar and Actuar are actually part of a larger process called Conscientización or and um, and Brandon I always love that, you know, he, we would each find out of our different contexts language that was organic to that context that reflected the mm-hmm. same concept. And then we would figure out a word that was both. So the word that was mm-hmm. both was consciousness. Mm-hmm. But conscientización is this process of looking at your reality and looking at your whole reality 
Um, and then going underneath and asking what are the roots of it? Why is it like that? Um, so it's, it's in that process that you can not only ver, ver is to see, but juzgar is to judge, is to, to evaluate. So there's a, a wonderful story where Paulo Freire is talking to a group of um, peasant farmers in Latin America. And, you know, he, they, they tell him that he has to tell them, he has to teach them because he has the right to teach them because um, he's above them. And he says to them, well, why do you think that I'm above you? Why do I think I know more than you? And they say, well, you've had a formal education. You've been to school. And he said, but why do you think I was able to go to school? Well, your parents were able to send you. And why didn't you go to school? Well, my parents didn't have the money to send me. And then, and he said, so you learned different things than I learned. And, mm. and they say, well, that's the way it is. And he says, why does it have to be like that? And they say, they're all quiet, and they say, well, God ordained it that way. And he said, look, your parents, if you had children, would you create it so that some of them could go to school and others of them couldn't? And everybody's quiet, and one man says, no, I, I would never do that. And, and he says to them, well, would God, and this goes back to what Brandon was saying about how deeply this is spiritual, right? And he said, well, so do you think God is, is not a, as good of a parent or as loving of a parent as you are? And- one of the other um, peasant farmers said, no, of course, God's a better parent than we are. Then he said, then Paulo Freire asks, well, then God, does God want it to be this way? And, and another one yells out, no, it's not God, it's the boss. Hmm. <laughs> That's conscientización. <laughs> like, yeah. ooh, no, God doesn't think that some of us should go to school and others of us shouldn't. No, mm -hmm. that's not God. Well, then why is it like that? And that process of, of going underneath to understand the reality that we're immersed in, that's the process of conscientización. But it's never just looking at what's happening in the world. It's, it's the interaction, as Karl Barth would say, right, between the word and the world. That this is what the world says. This is what the world is saying through all of these structures to each of us. But what is God saying and how is it different? And that's where change becomes possible. But, you know, I go back with, just in terms of the last thing I would say about these three different kinds of people that we talk about is um, June Jordan, the activist, African-American activist when I was young, a million years ago, um, when she said, it's not our shared oppression that unites us in the end, it's our commitment to change it. It's not this oppressive system that damages us. And the way that we are damaged that ultimately unites us, it's our commitment to change it. But we do have to recognize that as we have that commitment to change it, that we come from different places. 1 Corinthians 12, 24, 25 says, give more honor to those that have lacked it. We're talking about body parts, the parts of the body. Mm -hmm. Give more honor to the parts that have lacked it so that there will be no dissension in the body, but that all parts will have equal care for each other. The only way to get to all of us having equal care for each other is to give more honor to the parts that have lacked it. So we have different roles in the commitment to that change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. 
Yeah, I think uh, a story that comes to mind for me is 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 less of a. Uh, I'm not less. It's, it's not a story from the antebellum hush harbors. I'm thinking about what I would say um, is a, a faith community seeking to be a contemporary hush harbors, and that's the the faith community that I started with uh, friends and neighbors here in Greensboro, the Good Neighbor Movement. Um, and we, you know, this was during the season of Advent um, in 2018, I believe. Um, and uh, we were just, we, 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 you, we were studying scripture together. Uh, I th- we usually gathered in homes. I can't remember if it was my home. Um, but we were studying Mary's Magnificat and really looking at um, just the just the story of Jesus's birth, um, and around this time, an unarmed black man um, who also was houseless, uh, a young man here in Greensboro, North Carolina, Marcus Dion Smith, was um, suffocated to death by the Greensboro Police Department uh, when they used a uh, tactic called the, the rip hobble or hog tying to restrain him in the midst of him having a mental health crisis. Um, and we had heard about it and had a chance to respond to it um, with the wider community. But during during the season of Advent, when we were studying the scripture. Um, we saw um, the Marcus's story and um, the impact it was having on our community in a new light. Um, we saw it through the theme of hospitality and hospitality being denied to our houseless neighbors. And I remember us um, uh, helping to organize a vigil. So, so let me just pause. So in other words, we, we had the, the experience, right? The seeing, right? And we weren't at the site of that uh, torture, um, but we um, were privy to the information. We, the, the, we were a part of demanding to see the, the police uh, footage be released. So we were able to see, and then the judging um, really was done at, in this instance, at least through the lens of our faith in that story of, um, of Jesus's birth and being denied entrance um, to uh, have a place to stay um, for he and his family and to be cared for. Um, and we saw the parallel as it related to Marcus Dion Smith. So we didn't get into the technicalities of, um, you know, the, you know, the minute, you know, we, we in other words, we weren't, we, we weren't trying to be um, a medical examiner in that mm-hmm. sense, right? We were, we were seeking to judge or interpret the situation morally and theologically. And the, the conclusion that we came to as a community is that um, morally and theologically, Marcus was denied hospitality by the very people there to serve and protect and care for him um, during actually a celebratory time that it was a, it was a folk festival going on downtown. Um, and so we ended up sh- sort of sh- uh, bringing this framework, this interpretation of, of, of how to think about and uh, to, to think about Marcus's situation to our wider community at a vigil that we organized. Um, and it gave us a chance to really act and speak to our city council to Marcus's family and to our wider community to say it wasn't just that um, uh, Greensboro Police Department killed Marcus Dion Smith. It is that our city and those institutions who are um, supposed to be caring for um, 
our community actually denied him, denied him hospitality during his point of need in the same way that Jesus and his family were denied care and hospitality. Um, and so I, I think that like th- that, that kind of story um, illustrates what a process of consciousness or conscientization. I can, I can never say that the, the, mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, the Spanish uh, word of this, but that's what it looks like. Um, to to live this out. That's a beautiful story, Brandon. And so, you know, so classic in terms of how this process works. I mean, the other piece of it that you asked was that um, about the action, right? It's seeing and judging and and acting. But the understanding in popular education is that there's a reflection action cycle. And Mm -hmm. all of the base ecclesial communities practiced that. So you would you would see your reality, you would respond to it with intelligent love, and then you would come back and you would reflect. And you would say, how do we understand what we have experienced? And then from that, you would go back into action with that insight. And so there's this understanding that stepping out on your faith in the name of love is where you also learn more deeply who God is that you don't just learn who God is so that you can go then put it in practice, but Jesus is on the front lines of the struggle for justice. And as you're there, you know him better. Yeah. There's this beautiful incarnational learning um, through encounter with others. I'd be curious to to invite you to talk a little bit more about um, the types of of people that we mentioned earlier, the Amoses, the Ruths, and the Lydias. Um, maybe in light of of some of the stories you've shared, uh, my guess is that you're anticipating people from each of those groups might encounter your book or your work in different ways. So I'm wondering if you can talk about some of those people and and maybe think about the contemporary uh, Christian and and how they might think about this kind of liberating work. I'll start with with um, with Amos. Um, you know, Amos represents a homegrown leader, a leader from um, an oppressed community. Um, and you know, when I think about um, even that story that I just shared. Um, what we, you know, experienced there was that um, there were folks like Amos, right, who came up um, during the outcry um, because of Marcus's murder. Um, folks from from here in the community that were sort of native to to Greensboro, um, black folks, as well as folks from the houseless community that that knew Marcus intimately um, began to to come and speak out about uh, how what happened to him was wrong and to share about their experiences of community and relationship with 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 Marcus to to really affirm his humanity and his dignity. And, it, you know, the reason why it's important to, to lift that up is because um, 
these are folks who weren't inherently looking for these gatherings that happen out in the streets in response to Marcus's uh, death. Uh, they weren't looking for these gatherings. They weren't looking for church, right? Um, and yet, um, what we experienced in the street was a deep caring of one another, a crying out and lament uh, for um, for righteousness, uh, speaking the truth about what had actually happened because so much had been concealed, and and hope that we put in action, that we weren't going to stop until something was done to make amends for Marcus's death. Um, and, you know, the Amoses that are going to read this book, folks that come from oppressed backgrounds, um, who maybe don't see themselves as leaders, who maybe don't see themselves as um, needing church or even faith. Um, and yet they know intimately the experience of um, injustice. Uh, I think when they read uh, this book or, or when, they, when we think about folks like that who um, we encounter in our communities, that often what happens is as you get at the sight of the pain, um, it really opens up the possibilities for folks to uh, experience something more. And like what happened with this, uh, this movement that came around Marcus Deanna Smith. And so there is a real, there is a real um, opportunity for folks who come from oppressed backgrounds that are, that are looking for uh, uh, a version of faith and spirituality that is at the same time um, uh, the work of justice um, for those folks to to reclaim the hush harbors and the base ecclesial communities as a way to gather with their people uh, to make a better world. So I guess I'll speak to the Lydias and the Ruths. So the Lydias are people that are born into privilege, and the Ruths are the people that are born in a more oppressed context, but have climbed out or are in the process of climbing out. And I was, I had two stories that came to mind um, about the roles of those people and about the, the spiritual formation that happens for those people in the context of this kind of community. So one of them is from the BECs, that there was a BEC in El Salvador that ended up um, mushrooming and involving almost the whole of a village and in the process uh, built a school for the kids and built a health clinic and fought for water rights and got them and fought for electricity and got it and just bit by bit transformed the community and people um, who had been drug addicts and alcoholics got off of it, you know, because they were so excited to be part of this community and so full of life and just all kinds of wonderful miracles were happening. And there was a man who was volunteering who was a lawyer. And he was so moved by the community that he just wanted to be one of them in every way. And he came to the people who were building the schoolhouse and he said, so teach me to be a bricklayer. I don't want to be a lawyer anymore. I want to be a bricklayer. Mm -hmm. And they listened to him um, kindly, 
And they said, well, you know, the assembly needs to talk about this. And so just wait a few minutes. You know, you're not yet fully part of the assembly. We'll go in and we'll have a conversation and we'll come back. And so they came back to them and they to him and they said, you know, we really appreciate your desire to be a bricklayer. And if this is from the Holy Spirit, we would never stand in your way. But then we're asking you to wait a little bit so that we can find someone else in the village who can be trained as a lawyer. <laughs> Because we actually really need a lawyer. Mm -hmm. So if you can just work as a lawyer until we can find somebody, we would be very grateful. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I think that's such a wonderful story about, you know, the alienation that come, can go along with privilege and the mm -hmm. healing of that alienation when you realize that the power you have is just something to be shared. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of then, specific communities who actually yeah, need lawyers right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, but you know, that you don't have to wed the privilege with power. You can use the privilege as an opportunity to share power. So that's mm -hmm. a BEC story. There's a BEC going, you know, following Brandon in this, there was a BEC that formed in East LA um, of people who had left um, in the 80s and they, as part of Dolores Mission, they formed a, a set of BECs because BECs are small. So they form as a network, you know, it's one BEC. That's why I said it's sort of mushrooms because mm -hmm. it separates into all these smaller communities, but they're all linked. Um, so there was one of the BEC communities and this was a point in East LA where in the triangle, the Boyle Heights triangle, there were 18 gangs in about um, three square miles. And so you can imagine what it was like. And at that point, the gangs were all standing out on street corners and the BEC was meeting. And this particular BEC was mostly older women. And they they were, were praying about, they were reading a scripture about when Jesus is walking on the water and Peter gets out of the boat to walk on the water with Jesus. And then he starts to sink and then Jesus lifts him up, right? That's the story. Mm -hmm. And one of them said, you know, we're sitting here shivering in the boat because um, we're so scared of what's happening outside in the street, but maybe we need to go walk on the water to Jesus out there and join him. And um, and everybody said, no, you know, poo-pooed it. Like, what do we have to bring? We have nothing to bring. We're just a bunch of little old women. We're just abuelas. We have nothing to bring. What can we offer that situation? And one of them said, well, we can make tamales. And they all started laughing, but then it got more and more serious, like those things often do. And the Friday night after that, they took tamales to the street gangs on the corner. And some of their husbands who played guitars and could play the old ranchero music went with them and um, played music. And, wow. you know, the, the gangsters and the baby gangsters, a lot of them on the corner were didn't know what to do with these awareness mm -hmm. and the tamales, but they weren't stupid. You know, they ate the tamales. And so then they mm -hmm. had a conversation. They started a dialogue. And um, that became a weekly dialogue. And it, um, in the end, out of that dialogue came a number of amazing projects in that area, including a peace pact between the gangs that lasted about five years. And um, some people say that Homeboys came out of that, hmm. one of the most effective anti-gang programs in the world, because um, Father Boyle was the pastor of Dolores Mission at the time. But it was really hmm. the, base, the base ecclesial community that did this. But the, the growing into all of the projects required a lot of people with privilege, with skills, who could help raise the money, who could, but the leaders of it were the, the BCCs. 
Yeah. Wow. Who would be some of the Ruths, I imagine? The Abuelas? Yeah, they called you... themselves by like they named themselves after a while. It was clear they needed a name beyond BC. They called themselves Comité por la Paz, the Committee for Peace. Um, and then, of course, like I'm saying, there were there were all kinds of people from the parish who got involved in different ways, right? That the story of the base ecclesial communities connected with the Lourdes mission still goes on, and. Um, you know, they needed people from all different levels of society. Not, you know, so, you know, guilt, white guilt or privileged guilt uh, can be an excuse for staying where you are. When people like lamentation is this very popular thing now in the churches and more progressive evangelical churches in particular, everybody laments. But lamentation can be a way of staying where you are. Mm -hmm. You just sit there and cry about it. And then you feel better about yourself. But the truth is, that you can just put your hands to the task and just not have to make all the decisions, right? Yeah. <laughs> and there's a redemptive quality to that, right? Yeah. So I'd be curious, there are case studies we could dig into and other things that you that you wrote about, but um, boy, it strikes me when you interview two people, I just want to give you both so much time to talk and I want to respect your time. So I'm just going to own that. I feel that tension right now. <laughs> but um, I'd be curious as you think about um, what you hope uh, readers can move forward with. Um, what what's a, What would be a signpost of hope for you for the kind of, of transformation that you long for? You know, I view I view hope as 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 a, a practice or a discipline. You know, not not sort of just sort of mere uh, optimism. Um, and by discipline or practice, what I mean is that uh, it is in motion. That um, uh, it is, um, you know, as uh, many of my ancestors talk about being a prisoner of hope. And so, you know, I think that what I what I hope folks who read the book um, discover and 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 for for many um, it reaffirms for them is that we uh, if we open our eyes and not just our, our, our physical eyes but um, the eyes of our heart um, to places on the edges of our communities, of our churches, of our institutions, that there are these often small places where um, a mix of both oppressed and privileged folks gather to um, care for one another um, and uh, where they um, encourage one another as they step out boldly to seek change in their local communities. And that they do that inspired by, um, yeah, a God who um, is not content with the way things are. Hmm. And they are, those people are remaking faith um, for us in real time. And we, we, we'd better, um, be wise and humble to listen and to follow. Hmm. Um, 
that's what I would that's what I would hope for our readers. You know, I I think about the creativity of the young entrepreneurs that I know who are planting churches, who are starting Christian communities, who are trying to turn around dying communities or find their place and bring all that they have to bring. And I think about how discouraged they get. And, you know, because they feel, because they don't know, because we're such an ahistorical society, they just, they just don't know that anyone's done it before. And they feel like they're out on the ragged edge by themselves. Mm. And, and they give up. And I, I just want, I so want them to experience this, this, um, the wind of the Holy Spirit that comes from remembering. You know, in the in the Eucharist, we have a living memory, right? Remember. Mm. I want them to know that their grandparents, their great grandparents, um, found Jesus on the front lines in a way that just transformed every aspect of their lives and their community. And that they can do it, que si se puede. It's possible, much more, not everything is possible, mm. but much more is possible than they realize because they're not alone. Um, there's a great cloud of witnesses that surrounds them. And that's what I want people to take from the book is just a little more of that encouragement. Mm. Um, but those young people do give me hope. They have yeah. vision, they have a sense of the living God, um, but I want them to have that wave of support. Yeah, that- you're making things a little cloudier in the cloud. <laughs> Almost yeah. feels like a little bit of an introduction to some new new friends. And- yeah, if they can just know that, um, yeah, that's all. And I, I feel like, yeah. you know, we did work with a couple of other young church plants you know one mm-hmm. le- and and i okay i'm i'm just going to say this even though it's probably a little provocative but um i get really frustrated by how books by white upper middle class authors get used as the key books to teach us about the missional church mm. and <laughs> the, and and then that sort of weakens young people of color who are trying to be entrepreneurs if that's all they turn to right if that's Mm -hmm. what tells them how to do missional churches and so i really wanted this book to be a way of saying look yes nuestro it comes out of it comes out of us and look how beautiful what comes out of us it's not that we can't learn from anyone of course we can but we don't have to give up who we are to give birth to a church that really thrives in the modern world and that changes the world we don't have to give up our roots in fact we can draw from our roots um and be nurtured and strengthened that's what that i and we you know like i said we we talked to the folks um we talked to marcos canales and la fuente ministries um we talked to mission house with anthony smith and you know they're they're doing this right and you know brandon also in the good neighbor movement there's people out there who are doing this. We just want them to, to do it as well as possible and with great joy and the peace that passes understanding. Yeah. I appreciate you adding that. I think it's really significant um, uh, in part to simply overcome a sense of isolation. 
Um, so thank you so much uh, to both of you, Alexia and Brandon. I'm grateful for this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. For Thanks for giving us the opportunity. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Interviews are conducted by me, Sushama Austin Connor, and Sherry Osting. Our producer is Brooke Mateka. Like what you're hearing? Subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And while you're at it, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. The Distillery is a production of the Office of Continuing Education at Princeton Theological Seminary. Find out more at thedistillery.ptsem.edu. Until next time, thanks for listening.